This is the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. The church teaches that religious freedom is a fundamental human right and an aspect of the common good. In the United States, our religious freedom debates are often about how best to achieve civic peace in a pluralistic society. But in many other parts of the world, religious freedom can be a matter of life and death as religious minorities must try to find a way to survive under repressive regimes. Joining us today, we have our colleague Virginia Ferris. Virginia, or Jenny as we call her here at the office, is a policy advisor in the Office of International Justice and Peace. She's going to talk about religious freedom issues that we are monitoring around the world. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and join us. I'm delighted to be here with both you, Aaron, and with Mary. Thank you so much. So, first of all, can you just give us a sense of the scope of religious persecution? How many people live under repressive regimes? Who's being affected? Because I I think that it's actually shocking. Can you say a little bit about that? Okay, so the Pew Forum has been doing a study for about 10 years about this very issue. They look at governmental and societal restrictions on religious freedom. And Surprisingly, they have found that 43% of the world's countries, which means 83 countries, have high or very high restrictions on religious freedom. Now, you say 43%, well, that's okay, but in fact, some of those countries are some of the most populous countries around the world, like India, China. And so consequently, 77% of the world's population, or 5.5 billion people, are considered to be living in countries with high or very high restrictions on religion. And that can contrast to the fact that, again, according to Pew, 80% of the world's population affiliates itself with some religion. So how are they measuring that? You said high, high rates. I mean, how do they measure the, the how does the Pew Forum, right? And this is a, a nonprofit. Um, maybe it would be important to give some context of what, what the Pew Forum is. But how are they specifically measuring that governmental and societal uh, restrictions on freedom? So they are very careful in terms of developing a methodology that looks at Uh, specific measures that would constitute uh, restrictions on religion. So on the government side, it's like, to what extent does a government allow different religions to exist within a country? Do they ban certain religions? Do they jail people who are of a different faith uh, on sometimes spurious charges? Um, And on the societal side, what they're looking at are things like, do they discriminate in terms of allowing people of different religions to have education, to be employed, how they dress, um, where they live? Uh, Those are all some of the very systematic criteria by which they judge whether or not a country has, uh, from a government perspective or from a societal perspective, whether they impose restrictions on religious belief or behavior. That helps a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where did the, I'm um, curious, where, where did the U.S. rate? Did we rate high or low? You know, I honestly don't know mm, that, okay. that where we r- rate. I would tend to think that we're probably 
uh, not uh, in the best because of what happens in terms of Muslims in in the United States and even some anti-Semitic events, but um, we're by no means the worst. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, we wouldn't be included in that 77%. With high, very high restrictions. No, 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 I don't think so. Yeah, it wouldn't be like that. I think the way Pope Francis talks about polite persecution, it seems like it's, it's its own. There are some cultural things happening, but it's not the same as what's what you're talking about. Right, talking the about very severe people losing their lives, being being yeah, killed, or or having to yeah. worship in secret. Or I mean, mm-hmm. one of the big issues in some places is whether or not you can convert to another religion. Is that right? That is uh, a major issue because in some places the very act of conversion is considered apostasy, which is punishable by death. And actually, it's curious that in many of these countries, which repress uh, religious other religions, they still have signed on to the UN Declaration of Human Rights, hmm. protecting religious freedom. And so, uh, in some places, um, even the offer of education or healthcare can be considered allurement which is a term that uh, is used in India to constitute efforts to try and convert. And so if a Christian organization provides health care, that constitutes allurement and hence is against, they view that as an effort to convert, which is banned in a number of Indian states. For those places that have signed off on the UN declarations, I mean, I'm curious, are they, are, are they deliberately violating the terms, or do they just understand the right to religious liberty differently? Does that make sense as a question? Like, Or at the UN, I mean, none of this, it's kind of not really enforced in any way. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm trying to look at it from their side, the country side, though. Like, when they do sign off and say, yes, we, we agree to these things, is it because— they're just doing it so that they'll be respected in the world? Or do they really do they have a different understanding? Does that make sense? I think well, obviously yeah, I'm not on? speaking <laughs> speaking for Jenny, many countries. Get into their brains for us. <laughs> <laughs> but I I think it's uh, considered to be to be part of the international community. You need to sign up to these international standards of behavior even if it's not totally enforced or respected within your own country. I mean, I hate to, I'm not picking on India per se, but India is a secular democracy. Nonetheless, uh, there is sort of this move to ban conversion. And I know that commissioners from the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom have had a very hard time going to India because India says, we have freedom of religion. Don't come and bother us. Can you give us a sense also who is being affected? My general understanding is that Christians are the most, that it, it affects Christians and Muslims are probably are the top two religious groups that are being affected. One of the things I've heard, part of the reason for that is because Christians are just in so many places that that's, that might be one explanation for why Christians are just are more likely to be persecuted in some way. Um, but can you say a little bit more about which which faith groups are being, are there particular ones that are being targeted more often? 
Well, what, I think you're right. Um, Christians are listed by the Pew, which is a, a think tank, um, a non, um, an independent think tank that uh, covers um, social issues and does analysis of social issues in many, both domestically and globally. But according to Pew, Christians are the religious group that faces harassment or persecution in the largest number of countries. I think it's 144 countries. But they're followed very closely by Muslims who face discrimination and, and harassment in 142 countries. So that's a pretty close um, uh, margin. I think part of it is because Christians are in many countries around the world, and they are the minority in many countries around the world. Even, and even though they have been in many places for years, or centuries, nonetheless, I suppose that the political powers often find it easy to scapegoat a minority and blame that particular minority on its on the prob- whatever problems there are in the country. But in the case of the Muslims, a part of that disagreement or persecution stems from Sunni Shia, whether the Ahmadis are considered Muslims or not. So part of that uh, high number for Muslims being persecuted stems from internal Muslim conflicts. Yeah, that was one thing I wondered is how often these things are sort of conflicts within within the same faith group. Yeah, and we have instances of uh, Catholics and Protestants fighting against each other in Mexico. So, mm. <laughs> so oh, really? it, yes, yes. Can you say more about that? Because oh. that's not one of the countries that people, when they're thinking of, I think a lot of people know Christians face struggles in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people know about stuff that's going on in China. Like, those are things that are in the news. Mm-hmm. Mexico, not so much. I mean, can you just say yeah, a little bit about news that to me. One? Well, I don't have my particular information right in front of me, but they have a, a law of customary usage, and I may have to correct that later on. But in this particular law, it provides local government control over a particular more likely indigenous area. And so if Protestants are more in control of that area, they may enact a fine on Catholic groups who may not want to contribute to, the, to a, uh, a Protestant religious festival. And they may say, you know, you have to pay this because you're living here. And if you don't pay it, then we'll expel you. And Catholic groups likewise have done that for Protestants. So uh, it's a very interesting phenomenon. Uh, and because, uh, according this, to this law of customary usage, many of these places are in more remote areas, then trying to appeal to uh, the uh, Mexican state government or to the federal government authorities to, to intervene is often a very long process which may not resolve the conflict uh, very easily. And even in some cases where I think the court has ruled that uh, one group needs to let the other group come back in 
they're not there to enforce that. And so uh, it's, it's a problem. I'm curious, since in that case you have two different groups, you don't have one group necessarily dominating a minority in the country as a whole. Does that count as one of the 43% of countries? Do you know if that would count? I believe Mexico, let's see. You even have the report right here. Wow. This is glossy well, Mexico print. is not listed as a uh, in the U.S. Commission on International Religion. Oh, yes, Mexico is listed as a what they call a Tier 2 country by the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. So, okay. Yes. So, yes, okay. Can you say more then about, um, I mean, you're kind of touching on it, and, and I know it's a, we're talking about the whole world, uh, and it may help also for our listeners to understand that our Office of International Justice and Peace divided up into regions of the world, and your your own area of expertise is Asia. That's correct. That's correct. So, uh-huh. so obviously we can't hold you responsible for telling us everything about <laughs> every, <laughs> the entire the world. About world. The whole world. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, just to, to give us a general sense. Because there's such a wide range of, of things going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard for me to imagine that in most of these cases, you're talking about real theological disagreements. Like sometimes it's, it's cultural. My understanding is Nigeria, it's arguments about land. But then the, but then the, the religious differences can, can also fuel tensions. Can you just say a little bit about, give some examples of, different kinds of, of, of conflicts and how religion plays a role in those. But because it, it, religion maybe isn't like the central thing, it may be that, like you say, sometimes just a minority group, people like are, tend to scapegoat minority mm-hmm. groups, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I think, I don't think people necessarily come down and debate theology as to why they have differences, except if you're at religious institutions. So at the local level, I believe that in many cases, uh, it comes down to a question of, on the one hand, fights over access to resources, whether it be land, whether it be mineral rights, whether it be cattle, the rights of cattle to graze, as you mentioned in terms of Nigeria. it's a, there's an element of a lot of this being based upon the rights of herders to move their cattle across land, but climate change has required or has led them to want to move more into spaces which have traditionally been farmed. The farmers don't like to have the cattle coming through their crops. Often, though, it may stem from a question of uh, political and economic power and uh, whether or not a group such as Boko Haram, who I think started off being uh, feeling discriminated against by the central Nigerian government and protesting against the government, and ultimately these disputes over land, power, economic resources can lead to a take on a religious overtone. And so, for example, in Myanmar, you've got 
the Rakhine State, which is the western part of uh, of Myanmar, otherwise known as Burma, and it abuts Bangladesh. From what I understand, it's a relatively poor section of the country, but still has some mineral resources. So you've got you have tensions rising because Myanmar, Burma, is a majority Buddhist country. The uh, Muslims in Rakhine State, otherwise known as the Rohingya, are are viewed as interlopers and trying to seize or utilize very scarce resources for people who are already who feel that they were already there. Whether the Rohingya have been there for centuries, as some of them claim, that they were brought there by the British, or more recent immigrants from Bangladesh. Um, all of that has exacerbated the situation. So now, because of the government crackdown by the by the Burmese military on the Rohingya, you've got 800,000 who have fled the area and are living in camps in Bangladesh. I mean, it's a huge uh, humanitarian crisis that's going there, going on there in the border. Well, maybe to follow up on the question about the crisis, where do you see hope in these issues? Like, have you seen places where positive steps are being taken, or is it all bleak Doom <laughs> and getting? Gloom. Is it all getting worse? <laughs> because I mean, it is so. Like when you learn about these issues, it it can seem overwhelming that in some places it's just so bad for for religious minorities and. But are there places where where you've seen some progress or where, where good things are happening? Well, I think from a U.S. perspective, one of the things that uh, that the United States has done is pass an International Religious Freedom Act in 1998, and the Catholic bishops were very much involved in promoting that legislation. So under that act, there are these annual reports put out by the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, as well as the State Department's annual religious freedom report. So that highlights the issues. Now, is highlighting the issues enough? Probably not, because it doesn't necessarily mean that things have gotten uh, appreciably better. But I think by highlighting the issues, to a certain extent, it brings attention so that some governments realize that their behavior is under a certain spotlight, that, and they realize hmm, maybe it's better if we try and clean up our act um, at least a little bit. I often think about the fact that there's a certain dichotomy in what Saudi Arabia does. Uh, the Saudi Arabia being a country which is a basically a theocracy uh, guardian of the holy sites of uh, Mecca and Medina, and they support Muslim Christian understanding institutions outside of the country, but on the other on inside of the country, they're very restrictive in terms of any other faith being allowed to operate, sometimes even breaking up private gatherings in home in, in homes or gatherings in private homes for Christians or other faiths. But at the same time, obviously the Catholic Church has long supported international religious freedom. Pope Francis has been making a lot of outreach to 
uh, Orthodox as well as to uh, Muslim groups. He went to Egypt. He was just in the United Arab Emirates um, this February, and he issued a document on human fraternity with the imam, grand imam of al-Azhar. And also on the other side, you have Sheikh bin Baya, who is a very noted Islamic theologian who has tried to gather Islamic thinkers together to issue a declaration that shows that the Prophet Muhammad was in favor of tolerance of other religions, and that document is called the Marrakesh, docu- uh, the Marrakesh Declaration. So those are, I think, very helpful signs. Also, you have Catholic, uh, the Catholic Bishops' Conference in countries, even where there are a small minority, trying to serve as mediators between different religions. Cardinal Bo in Myanmar, I think, is certainly uh, an example of trying to mediate between the Muslims and the Buddhists. Yeah, it does. Seem, I get the sense that there's uh, a lot of work being done on Islam and religious freedom. Mm-hmm. I know, like Dan Philpot at Notre Dame does work on this. Ismail Royer mm-hmm. is um, with the, the Religious, religious Freedom, Freedom Institute. Institute. Uh-huh. Um, is somebody who's looking at this. I mean, he himself is a devout Muslim, uh, and I think that that's important. That it's it's coming from within, not trying to like convince people that they have to accept a Western version. Uh, of religious freedom. So I think that that seems like it's helpful. Hopefully it's something that it can be a positive uh, Mm -hmm. thing going forward. I do wonder, just for context real quick, and if you don't know, it's fine, but you mentioned Saudi Arabia. How many Christians live in Saudi, about how many Christians, how many non-Muslims live in Saudi Arabia? I think roughly about, I'm going to say like Eight to ten percent of the population are ex are expatriates living in Saudi Arabia. Of that, there are quite a number. I mean, Saudi citizenship is defined as being Muslim. So the expats may also include Muslims from Pakistan, Indonesia, who are working there on contract. But there's a significant number of Filipinos working in Saudi Arabia, or even Christians from India working in Saudi Arabia. So so it's not inconsequential. Um, I don't have the actual numbers in front of me, but for so long, it, it's always been very difficult for, there's no Christian churches in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the construction of a Christian church has not been allowed. Even Saudis have restricted the construction of Shia mosque. So you know, that gives you an idea of how the hurdles that need to be overcome in order to do that. And even having foreign religious ministers come to Saudi Arabia, that's also been very difficult. Yeah, that kind of dovetails with what I've been wondering is to what extent are Catholic, either at the formal level, you know, bishops or bishops' conferences or even missionary missionaries, like to what extent are Catholics success, have been able to be successful at getting into perhaps Catholics in countries where there is such restrictions on religious liberty, like to get to actually bring 
Catholics living there to have mass, to have the sacraments. Like I think of China, for example, where there have been so many problems with, you know, the underground church in China versus the formal church allowed by the state. And so I'm just curious if there are countries where like there are efforts to, I don't know if it underground efforts or whatever, or even formal efforts to get, bring Jesus in the sacraments in to, to Catholics. Well, I think that those countries that are listed in both the State Department and the U.S. Commission's reports as being systematic, egregious violators of uh, religious freedom are ones where it will be difficult. You know, North Korea having a Bible is, uh, is problematic. China, interesting enough, China is the produces the largest number of Bibles around the world. They print the largest number of Bibles around the world. Wow. <laughs> that is in- Am- very interesting. Amity Press. Um, <laughs> at the same time, I understand on the basis of religious freedom regulations that were promulgated and I think begun to be implemented within the last year, it has become more difficult to perhaps buy a Bible. I don't know what they do with all the Bibles. Maybe they just have them in the in the government-approved churches and there you pick it up. Or they um, ship them out to Walmarts ship- around the world and sell them there. <laughs> you know, I don't know. But, for example, China is restricting religious education. So it's become, you know, more difficult. I think that in some places, countries will make it very difficult for people of faith to come in for the purpose of, as we would say, spreading the gospel, proselytizing, uh, etc. But on the other hand, for example, in North Korea, they have had a program that has allowed the Marino brothers to go into North Korea for the past I don't know, 15 years, to run a tuberculosis program. And, and when they go in, I mean, the Marino fathers go in with, with medical doctors, etc. They don't hide their faith. They're not there to preach. They're there to provide medical, medical care. But on the other hand, those receiving the treatment know that they are religious and respect the fact that they are there to live out their faith. I wonder if if you can say something about China that is interesting to me. And I'm again, I don't normally follow. In terms of the division of labor, we're focused more on domestic issues. So, so I'm sure we'll get some things wrong with the question I'm about to ask. But <laughs> I came across an article not long ago saying that China was kind of moving away from outright repression to doing more cynicization right kind of like what we might call radical enculturation or you refer the religion to to the state you know is that good way i, I don't know if that's the best way of of describing that process but I, I just wonder if that's if that kind of policy is what's pursued does that count as outright like where, where would that put them then in, in in these pew studies if they changed it where they're not like saying you can't practice your faith it's just that the state still is above religion in a way if that might maybe that's an easy way to to summarize or you can maybe speak more about about this if you've been 
Well, I can. <laughs> I think that in the case of China, China has always been on both the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom as well as the State Department's annual report list as being um, a country of particular concern, which is how they categorize those countries that are more egregious violators of religious freedom. And as I indicated earlier, you know, many, many places have on their books uh, on their as part of their constitution, freedom of religion. Now, China is an atheist country, as is North Korea, but they have they have a practice of, and I think particularly under um, Xi Jinping, they do want to sinicize not only Christianity but all the religions that they officially recognize. Uh, so, pardon me, but I don't, what is sinicize? I don't know that word. That means to make it with Chinese characteristics. Like Americanize. Like when oh, sinicize. Um, okay. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. All right. S-I-N-I-C-I-Z-E. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning a lot. Boy. Ooh, even words. So, um, so I was there in October 2000, I'm sorry, in June 2017, I visited China with uh, the U.S. Catholic China Association, which was set up mm, probably about, oh, I'm going to say close to 30 years ago. And, the, and this delegation included five priests, a Jesuit, a Passionist, a Lazarite, you know, I, there were five of them, and we did, and they did come celebrate mass in um, Xi'an, uh, and we visited many places. Where, interestingly enough, I was surprised that in the middle part of the country, which I had not visited before, there were there were strong Catholic roots. In, in the middle of the country. And we went to one church on the outskirts of Xi'an, which is where the terracotta warriors are. And they had an old church that was built in the 1950s, and they were in the process of building this pastoral center, marble, stained glass. I mean, it was really very, very nice. And so I said, so when did you get permission to to have the land for this church. And they said, we've always had, this church has always, this, the land for this church has always been in our hands. We've had it for over a hundred years. Now, I'm thinking, okay, Mao came in 1959, the Cultural Revolution was in the 1960s, and throughout all this time, they still were able to hold on to this land. Now, uh, and get the funds to build this beautiful new center, which they hope to have as an education uh, facility as well for the, for the community. Now, that was June of 2017. The religion laws were really approved in October 2017 and really began being fully implemented uh, in, in 2018. Will that church still have the same leeway to do what they want to do? I don't know. I think in the previous times, 
there was uh, more of a lo- of a leeway so that depending upon how church officials dealt with local authorities, if they had a good relationship, then it could uh, it could flourish. I mean, there were even some churches that we visited where the local government had put money into renovating the church after the Cultural Revolution. I mean, there's some beautiful churches there. Is that all possible to the same degree now? I don't know. I think it is a more difficult time, but it's not just, I mean, the Buddhists are having their problems too. Uh, obviously, the Muslims, the Uyghurs are having their problems. So it's not just the um, the Christians. I think Xi Jinping is trying to mobilize support for the party, for the com- Chinese Communist Party, and to promote a vision of China on the world stage that is getting the respect that it had when China considered itself the Middle Kingdom, and everyone had to come and pay tribute to China. Well, I wonder if you could say a little bit about, you know, you've worked on these issues for a long time, promoting religious liberty around the world. Um, Have you found in general that this is um, something that can help, uh, you know, coming together around these cases of egregious persecution and repression can be a way to overcome polarization sometimes? It's like domestic issues can sometimes be kind of polarizing, but these, this seems to be something that, that you know, people, Republicans and Democrats can come together to support. Have you seen some of that in your own work? Yeah, I mean, there is um, an International Religious Freedom Roundtable that meets very regularly since Ambassador Sam, Sam Brownback became the ambassador at large for international religious freedom, and he whenever he's in town, he uh, opens himself to a meeting with this group of NGOs. They're like close to 50 NGOs that will gather together to present concerns about religious freedom in specific countries or in specific regions around the world or the types of behavior that uh, can cause blowback on um, religious minorities. So the fact that you've got these groups convening together, what is it called now? I think they call it uh, a non-space so that people can opt in to join to on specific cases or, or decide not to not to participate at all. So it's, it's a very um, a safe space where ideas related to uh, support for religious minorities can be exchanged. And I think that that is extremely um, useful process, which actually, to a certain extent, they're trying to suggest that this model of having different religious groups meet together and iron out differences, or at least hear each other's differences, is one that can be used in other places around the world. So there, there has been an attempt, supported by Ambassador Brownback, to do these International Religious Freedom Roundtables around in other countries around the world. So there, was, there have been, I think, two in Nigeria, one in UAE, one in Taiwan, one in Thailand. 
The one in Nigeria, interestingly enough, um, they reported back that this gathering of Muslim, Christian, other religious minorities together, one very concrete uh, result was that they're working out arrangements so that they can bury their dead in their respective cemeteries. Very concrete things, but, you know, things that sort of speak to uh, important uh, aspects of one faith. How do you bury your dead, and where do you bury your dead? So that was, I think that was a very um, interesting outcome. So there are more of these that hopefully will develop. I know that the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, the International, the Office of International Religious Freedom, have been working with uh, EU parliamentarians, again, to sort of promote discussions about um, how to deal with religious conflicts within a, within a country. Uh, the other thing I would note, too, is that um, you've got Brian Grimm, who used to be with the Pew Forum, who's now set up his own religion and business foundation. And he's been going uh, and giving talks um, all around the world. He's spoken to the U.S. bishops as well as to the Vatican. And he has been spreading the message that respect for religious freedom can be good for business. And so that kind of uh, message is getting out. He pairs his, he gives a religious freedom award for that business, which is done done well in terms of promoting religious freedom, and he has done given that award in conjunction with the Paralympics. So he was in Seoul, he was in in uh, Brazil, giving these kinds of awards. So it it's I think a really good way to try and raise the profile uh, because ultimately I think a lot of advancing uh, the message of the need for tolerance and respect for religious freedom comes through education. And so I think all of these efforts um, speak towards educating policymakers and hopefully more the general public about this vital human right. Well, and I wonder, just to to close us out, if you might say a little bit about just what the, is there anything the average Catholic can do? I mean, we hear about some of these things. Is there, what kind of action can we take, or is the best thing to do just to try to become more educated about about the issues? Can you give us a, a sense? Give Close us out with a little guidance. Ginny, <laughs> <laughs> give us hope. Hope. Tell us what to do. <laughs> well, I think... You know, there is a Catholic peace-building network that is quite active in places like the Philippines, uh, Colombia, parts of Africa. Um, I think supporting Catholic Relief Service, Aid to the Church in Need, Catholic Near East Welfare Association, all of these organizations do provide assistance um, in many cases, humanitarian uh, assistance, but many of them are also involved in peace building in trying to look at conflict resolution, uh, trying to heal some of the trauma that comes from this kind of uh, persecution. So I think that those are supporting those institutions, being very 
aware and supporting bills, such as there will be a bill advancing to um, uh, reauthorize the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. So contacting your members of Congress to support that bill, because I think they do very vital work. See, State Department does its annual report, which covers all the countries around the world. And there is a person in the political section, and having worked in embassies overseas, I know that sometimes it's a junior person in the political section that is required to do this report. Um, so this report is done by every embassy around the world. The U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom takes a much smaller group of countries and goes into more depth as to what is happening, provides recommendations for that government, for civil society, and for the U.S. government on how to, how to deal with the religious um, uh, violations that are occurring in a particular country. So I think the U.S. Commission does play a very vital role, and it would be very good to reauthorize them, hopefully more permanently as opposed to every three or four years having to go back and be reauthorized. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's very helpful. It's been a great conversation. Thank you f so much for taking time to come and talk to us. Yeah, well, Jenny, I, that was that, very helpful. Thank you. Well, and I'm happy that we're part of Religious Freedom Week, and hopefully this will help raise the profile of the issue both domestically and internationally. Yeah, I think it was a good move to get us working more closely together. So, and I think these past couple of years of us as a permanent committee working more closely with international justice and peace has been good, and I hope that we keep doing more of it. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. This is Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>